The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we take a closer look at North America's housing culture, how it got the way it is today, and how it's changing. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Nathaniel Louster, an associate professor in the sociology department at the University of British Columbia. He's an internationally recognized expert in housing and is the author of the book, The Death and Life of the Single Family House, Lessons from Vancouver on Building a Livable City. Nathaniel, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks so much for having me on. So just to get started, before we dive into the content of your book, can you give us a super quick primer on what a sociologist does and how you do your work? <laughs> oh, boy. That's actually a big question to ask. Sociologists do a lot of different things. Um, in my own uh, history, I'm actually a demographer by training. So I trained as a demographer within a sociology department. But demography, of course, is counting people. So that's a very simple way to understand what, what how, where my training comes from. Um, that said, as a quantitative, uh, quantitatively trained sociologist, I'm used to dealing with a lot of numbers. A lot of other parts of sociology are qualitative in orientation, and I've moved in that direction in my own work where I'm actually going out and talking to people because it turns out when you actually talk to them, they have really interesting things to say. So that's mostly sociologists do that kind of a combination of quantitative, qualitative work and trying to figure out how society is put together. So what kind of data do you use in your research projects? Mostly interview data? It's a big combination, actually. So the kinds of work that I've done, I've used everything from the census data, um, which, again, is how I was trained. And I used to work at the Minnesota Population Center, where they house a lot of international census data. Um, and I've also used... Um, quasi-experiments where we've done audit studies trying to figure out whether or not people are facing housing discrimination in the rental markets. And then I do a lot of qualitative work, uh, including both archival studies and the historical documents and uh, interviews. Okay, so this book focuses on single-family homes. I mean, they're the predominant part of the, the title. So what made you want to look into single-family homes in particular? Uh, you know, I didn't actually start with a focus on single-family homes, but that's definitely where I ended up. Um, I began trying to think through um, how, and this is, again, from my history as a demographer, how the access to housing that people face in their housing markets affects their ability to form families. And um, increasingly, I became really interested in the context of Vancouver, a place where single-family houses are really out of reach and have become increasingly so for most people um, and what that meant for people. And the single-family house, it turns out, is really important in a cultural sense for a lot of people. Um, it has a lot of meaning to them. And so it became increasingly, as, as I proceeded through talking with people about how housing and family intersected for them, it became this recurrent theme um, and that caused me to go back and figure out where the single-family house came from, uh, historically speaking. So that's why I went back to the archives and did a lot of research trying to figure out the history of this thing, both across North America broadly and very specifically within the case of Vancouver. So 
So you start early on in the book by defining the word house. And it turns out uh, something that might seem really simple and obvious, like the idea house is actually quite a lot more complicated than it first appears. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to understand what a house is. And the way I like to think of it, it takes these different forms, depending upon how you're talking about it. Um, we have the, the physical structures of the house, the, the infrastructure of a house, so to speak, that um, we can feel around us. If you live in one, you can actually you know, hear it, uh, you can smell it. Um, but it's not very easy to talk about or transport from one location to another because it's very specific bodily interactions we have with our environment. Then we have these vague ideas of what a house is that sort of go with this idea that you can know it when you see it, you look around, and it looks kind of like the shape of the little pieces in the Monopoly game. Um, we have a very vague sense of what a house looks like in that sense, and we can talk about it in the same way that we use a lot of language, um, which can be ambiguous. And then we see it also written up in these market reports where um, houses are bought and sold. And there, too, it retains some of the ambiguity uh, for how we talk about houses and language. But it starts to take on a slightly sharper form because it starts to intersect with the regulatory concept of a house. And here, especially in the bylaws that we see different municipalities pass, the single-family detached house takes on a very sharply defined form um, that's quite rigid and quite constraining. And that's where we see it most clearly defined, is in this regulatory capacity that we have for single-family houses. What's interesting with the the regulation, uh, when you really look at it as well, it's quite interesting the um, backflips that sometimes have to be done in order to differentiate something that is a house from, for example, a mobile home, which people feel like they should be able to differentiate from. But really, that's a hard, precise distinction to make because they're two very, very similar things from a physical standpoint. Yeah, so you see these funny sort of uh, um, long digressions in a lot of these bylaws that very carefully try and define, well, this is what makes it move from a mobile home to an immobile detached single-family house. Uh, and it has to do with some notions of the foundations or, or um, making sure that you remove that mobility aspect to it. Uh, but it also has to do with these very clear distinctions between different units, different possible dwelling spaces, um, in terms of making sure they're detached from one another. And that detachability is actually a key component in terms of preserving these single-family, detached household neighborhoods. So is the North American definition of house in these contexts different from other places around the world? I'm thinking in particular of other sort of, quote-unquote, developed countries on other continents. Absolutely. We have, uh, I mean, effectively, these these distinctions, and this is part of what I was trying to point out in the book, are historically driven and driven in part by the regulatory constructs that we put in place. So just to give you one example, um, I did my dissertation work in Sweden. And when I was working there, they have a big distinction effectively between what they call flerhus or multiple family houses and smohus, which is basically one or two family houses. That one or two family houses gets you at the ambiguity, right, that uh, that we try to distinguish here in North America with the single-family house. You have that quite distinct from duplexes. Um, in Sweden, it doesn't matter. They treat it as effectively the same in the regulatory context, and they don't try and distinguish between these two forms. So that's just one example of how 
the notion of what's a house is actually kind of tricky to transport from one context to another because we do have these distinct regulatory histories. In the context of Canada and the United States, they're strikingly similar, actually, at least with respect to the single-family detached house. But they do actually vary once we get beyond that in terms of whether or not you define structures by, say, height or by number of units or by other um, various ways we might define different buildings as being distinct from one another. Living here in North America, we tend to um, think of the idea of the house as universal. I mean, until we consider it more than kind of on a gut reaction. And then we do kind of grudgingly recognize that people in other, in other cultures and on other countries or in other countries live differently than we do. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's also really nice in that sense to root the history of housing in a context like Vancouver into its pre-settler days, right? Pre-colonial days. Um, when we had, historically speaking, in my part of Vancouver, where we had the Muskie living, for instance, in longhouses for large portions of the year, which are effectively low-rise apartment buildings, right? I mean, in terms of how they're actually, how they were structured. Um, so that's just another form of denaturalizing this idea that a single-family house is where everyone historically lived and would naturally live if we not have these unnatural cities. Uh, so we really need to interrogate that kind of a history to get at the great diversity in the ways that people actually do this. I mean, this brings up the question of what distinguishes a lifestyle from from a living standard, which is something that you try to dig into quite a bit in the book, because it is it is sometimes a really complex, difficult question to answer. Yeah, and they come with different moral weights, too, right? I mean, a sort of living standard has this idea that we're meeting a universal set of needs. And sometimes we seem to treat, at least in rhetoric, if not in actual uh, legal specifics, the single-family detached house as a kind of living standard that everyone wants and everyone should have access to, um, when in fact it is a lifestyle in many respects, and it's a lifestyle that's been designed to reinforce particular understanding of family, a particular understanding of what your needs are, and a particular kind of urban form, which is very limited and very suburban in actual um, um, orientation. Within the book, you also use some interesting terminology from uh, like ecosystem biology, such as habitat, uh, talking about the habitat for houses and ask whether houses um, are an invasive species. I mean, why, why choose the language of ecology when talking about housing? It's a good question. In part, this is drawing upon the history of sociology. Um, sociology began, especially urban sociology, in the context of North America, um, really has its foundations in what's known as the Chicago School of Sociology. And when they were coming up with trying to understand how cities changed, how neighborhoods changed, they drew upon these metaphors from plant ecology. And there was actually quite a bit of cross-dialogue between sociology and um plant ecology in terms of understanding changing ecosystems. Um, so they had this idea of neighborhood succession, which is that neighborhoods were expected to change as a city grew, and um, you would have these different ecosystems, sort of their understanding, uh, in effect, different neighborhoods and move outward um, as the city grew, such that residential neighborhoods would transform into multifamily residential and then into commercial spaces as the downtown core grew outward. 
So they had these back and forth metaphors, and that's part of the reason that I draw upon ecology is just to highlight the fact that sociology does have its history. And it is actually, despite the fact that there were problems with the way it used to be applied, um, it is an interesting and useful way to think. And I think more broadly, another thing that it does is force us to reconcile a bit with um, the broader implications and impacts that the kinds of habitat we create for ourselves um, have on the world around us. Um, so we don't want to separate out humanity from broader ecosystems because there's influence both ways. We are creatures. We have habitats. And we should pay attention to that. We should pay attention, I guess, to the habitats we're creating for ourselves in a lot of respects. Absolutely. And also the displacement we're causing in terms of the broader habitats around us when we do um, take up land for creating our own habitats. And this, of course, is one of the big things I want to draw attention to with respect to single-family detached houses, that as we rely upon this mode of housing people in terms of building our cities, we increasingly promote urban sprawl, and that displaces other pre-existing ecosystems in the places where we put houses in their stead. You make use, frequent use of the term the Great Housing Reserve in this book. Can you tell us what that is for people who haven't read it? Sure, and, and specifically the Great House Reserve, um, rather than housing only insofar as I want to call attention to this to the fact that this Great House Reserve really specifies only single-family detached houses can um, uh, be built in these areas. And effectively, this stems from zoning regulations that uh, cover almost all of our cities and most of our suburban areas as well around our cities. And these zoning regulations are set in place to, to really regulate uh, what can be built in these places and how those buildings can then be used. So most of our urban land base is actually zoned such that only single-family detached houses can be built there. And that's a real constraint on how we can shape our cities. So this is an interesting topic uh, that is the history of how the single-family home, certainly the model of it we use in North America, how that that single-family home idea came to be, specifically from a zoning and regulation standpoint. Because that's interesting, true, because I think we have a sense of this is the way it's always been, that there was no before the house or before residential and commercial zoning, that that is, is just how things have always been. But it's actually quite a, a modern idea, modern zoning and regulation rules, correct? Absolutely, right? So this is early 20th century. This uh, idea of zoning the city starts to take hold and starts to be promoted as well by this nascent planning profession that's developing through the early 20th century. Um, so yeah, we didn't have zoning prior to the early 20th century, and that meant that cities were actually chaotic in uh, terms of the different land uses that we saw. Um, so that if you buy a house in the, in the middle of the city, you know, or even just on the outskirts of the city, if the city is rapidly growing, um, you might have this idea who your neighbors will be, but as the city grows, there really was something to this metaphor of succession. The territory around you would change, and who your neighbors might be could change. Um, the neighbor who you thought was a wealthy landowner living in a mansion next door could actually move further out and be leaving behind this old mansion that they subdivide into different apartments 
And all of a sudden, instead of being in a wealthy neighborhood, you're in a neighborhood that's either middle class or even working class. And a lot of middle class and relatively wealthy people found this really offensive, right? That uh, the neighborhoods change so rapidly around them. Um, and that's part of where you see this rallying around zoning, especially single family uh, residential zoning, as a way to stabilize um, the land uses in the city. And I think it had this effect of stabilizing them, uh, such that now one of the major um, urban researchers in the United States talks about how these residential single-family zones are kind of like diamonds, right? They last forever uh, once you set them into local bylaws. Um, so it really has, by virtue of regulating the city through these zoning bylaws, it really has frozen in place uh, a certain city form at least with respect to the single-family detached neighborhoods that have sprawled out around what are now quite constrained and involved in urban cores. What I found really interesting was multi-family housing, things like apartments, uh, were seen as nuisances. And, and in particular, instead of being zoned as residential, which essentially is what they are, it's, it's a building where people live, um, quite often uh, things like apartments were zoned as as commerce or as a business, correct? Kind of. So they had this, we have this history where like the early New York City zoning bylaws, for instance, um, they did have just a blanket residential, commercial, industrial um, division and residential included apartment buildings as well as uh, single family. But increasingly, as other cities develop zoning codes, the single-family detached neighborhoods um, became the most important and the most prominent thing driving their zoning legislation. And that distinction between single-family detached neighborhoods versus other kinds of residential neighborhoods uh, is what was litigated and carried on to the Supreme Court decision, um, the famous Euclid decision, that established that cities could do this. Um, prior to that legal test, it wasn't certain whether or not zoning legislation was actually going to be considered lawful. But after that legal test, all of a sudden it just booms in, in, uh, um, in popularity. And all over North America, you see people using this single-family residential zones as an important way to stabilize land uses, especially for the middle class. And that basis, the Supreme Court decision that decides that residential single-family could be protected from residential apartments uh, did so on the basis of the idea that residential apartments were commercial land uses, um, and that's what they distinguished it from. Which really means, of course, just as you were saying, right, that, that these in these neighborhoods where lots of uh, um, families, in fact, lived in these multifamily apartment buildings, um, that all of a sudden, everybody in those families, including the children that the Supreme Court decision was so interested in protecting through legislating single-family residential neighborhoods, all those children are now thought of as engaged in commercial transactions with their landlords, um, rather than having a residential right <laughs> to that uh, uh, to those living spaces. It is all the residential protection was now thrown over to the residential single-family areas. 
It is interesting to me how as these regulations came into effect, by defining something like a single family house, you of course also have to define what you mean by family if you're limiting only one to being in that space. So then suddenly the the idea of family becomes kind of a regulated term as well. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it, to some extent, this is, uh, once you get down to this municipal level of regulation, um, that's where some of the, the things that we miss uh, in terms of focusing on national level uh, legislation um, really come to bear upon how governments actually do define families. Um, codes are actually put in place to tell you what kind of family relationships are considered legitimate, right? Marriage, adoption, uh, um, actual parent-child relationships. These are the kinds of relationships that get coded as family once we start to define single-family detached houses. Now, when was condominium-style kind of joint ownership, when was that model of home-owning brought in? Uh, it's a good question. So we didn't have that, which is one of the striking things about urban form, right? If you wanted to be a homeowner, pretty much you were stuck with single-family detached homeownership um, for um, most of the 20th century up to the 1960s when we really started to see the spread of condominium legislation. Um, and then we start to, in the 70s and 80s, we start to see more and more condominium buildings such that now a large part of the cities, um, certainly of Vancouver, Toronto, uh, et cetera, are actually uh, comprised of condominium ownership. But it's a recent invention, and that's one of the interesting things um, that when you look back, you get a sense of motion of home ownership policies. The policies put in place by succeeding governments that wanted to say, everybody should be a homeowner, we should promote this as a national goal. Those really encouraged only single-family detached forms of ownership until the 1970s. So your book kind of hyper-focuses in on the city of Vancouver and its particular history with housing. Um, and the, of course, the surrounding suburban, suburban area kind of known as the lower mainland to that area. Why focus on a single city rather than gather data from multiple cities across North America? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I think that for me, one, I live here. <laughs> that's <laughs> so a park. Um, two, it's uh, uh, focusing in really allowed me to get a real sense of how the history of Vancouver played into the present um, in a way that if I was sort of drawing on a much more like uh, expansive sense of drawing from what's happening all across North America, I don't think I could have really focused in to see how history matters to one particular place. And there are, I mean, both of these are good approaches to trying to figure out what's happening to North American cities insofar as you need sort of explicit case studies um, because cities are really unique in some respects. But you also need an expansive sense of how cities relate to one another. And in fact, policy does, in many cases, jump from city to city. And in the context of Vancouver, I think what's really cool about Vancouver is its dramatic history of moving away from the single-family detached house. It was one of the first um, adopters of zoning legislation that actually sets up these single-family house reserves, these great house reserves in Canada. 
But uh, then it moves dramatically away from relying upon single-family detached houses as the primary way it houses people from the 1960s effectively onward. So that's a big change in Vancouver, and it's bigger than any other metropolis across North America that we've seen in terms of moving away from single-family detached houses. So what were some of the particular policy changes or pieces of unique Vancouver history that moved the city from its trajectory kind of along the same route that a lot of North American cities have gone on uh, to become very sprawly? Um, whereas Vancouver has managed to avoid a lot of that sprawl when compared to other other cities across the continent. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating what's happened in Vancouver. Um, some of it's just about, uh, quite frankly, a kind of neglect, a kind of latecomer status in terms of Vancouver's history. Um, so that by the time they actually started to try and get a freeway into downtown Vancouver, um, we've had big experiences, including experiences like, as in Toronto, where Jane Jacobs uh, moves from New York and she sort of gains a following as a as, as someone who's very against this kind of freeway development that we associate with Robert Moses-style planning in New York City. Um, so we have this nascent anti-freeway movement that moved to the fore in Vancouver together with a real concern for, for preserving the Strathcona neighborhood where uh, we had a lot of old... Um, older parts of Chinatown that wanted that people wanted to preserve um, and we had neighborhood organizations and community empowerment all coming together at basically the right time to fight back and to stop freeways from moving into the downtown of Vancouver. So in this sense, because Vancouver came late to the game, we had a lot of experience and a lot of community building um, that was able to take place to prevent freeway expansion to downtown. And that's one of the things that makes Vancouver extinct from other metropolitan areas across North America is there's no freeway running to the center of Vancouver. Um, that's quite striking. One of the things that that did, uh, of course, is make it more difficult to drive into the downtown of Vancouver from the surrounding suburbs. So it, in some respects, made it more attractive to live downtown or close into the city. But one of the other things it did, which is less often acknowledged, is it freed up a lot of land in the inner cities that otherwise would have gone to supporting a freeway. And what they did with a lot of that land is build more housing in Vancouver. So that's part of the history of Vancouver, and that's also part of what uh, um, uh, promotes a sort of politics of reform within the city of Vancouver, where a more progressive party moves into power, and they're much more interested in encouraging livability um, all across the city of Vancouver, including in residential areas that weren't single-family detached house neighborhoods. So that focus on making the city livable in that sense, uh, both the neighborhoods downtown and around downtown, as well as the suburban areas, then oscillated with this back-and-forth politics of, of growth and promoting growth at all costs and... Um, and promoting urban livability at all costs. And so with this oscillation creates Vancouver's unique history in some regards uh, in terms of how it's promoted a denser form of urban livability in other cities across North America. In the book, I talk about three different ways that that happened and that unfolded uh, with respect to the existing 
huge amounts of land that were set aside as single-family detached neighborhoods. And so we can see that we, um, in many cases, built around these old single-family detached neighborhoods, this great house reserve. And we built around this in the downtown core, where you have a lot of low-rise and high-rise alternatives to single-family detached houses. And then we also saw larger projects out in the hinterlands of Vancouver to protect the existing agricultural land. So the agricultural land reserve was protected by uh, the provincial government in the 1970s so that we could no longer um, scroll outward uh, in terms of development of Vancouver's metropolitan area. And that joined existing protections and renewed protections in terms of um, uh, basically the parklands and other um, access to alternative ecosystems in and around Vancouver. So we built around the house. We have built over the house to a much more limited extent, by which I mean we we haven't actually changed that much of this old zoning protections for single-family houses. They really are quite durable. But in some limited places, we have seen attempts to build over these old protections and to reintegrate the fabric of these great house reserves with the rest of the city. And then the other final thing that we've done in Vancouver is that we've renovated the very meaning of the house itself, such that we've allowed secondary suites and laneway houses on most of these old single-family detached house lots. And that suddenly allows us to get three different households on what is ostensibly a one-household zone. And that, too, is something I think Vancouver has done in terms of encouraging alternatives to getting single-family houses. Stay tuned for more Science for the People after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People. I'm your host, Rochelle Saunders. It's interesting. I didn't know uh, how much of the agricultural land around Vancouver uh, there was. I mean, I have family that live in Abbotsford, so I've driven through that area, and I know there's an agritourism industry there. But the common conception of why Vancouver hasn't sprawled out is because there's no room to, because there's a coast on one side, mountains on another side, and the U.S. border on the other side. But in reality, a lot of these limitations aren't necessarily about geography. They're about we, at some point, we decided to protect some agricultural land in order to stop the sprawl, which is not something I realized. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not something that's actually widely promoted about Vancouver either. I think that's a common perception, right? That Vancouver is just limited geographically. And it is to some extent. I mean, we're not, uh, you know, we're not Dallas, Texas or someplace that really is just surrounded by flat land. But uh, before you get to the mountains, you're already stopped by, uh, before you certainly move too far up the mountains, you're stopped by these park regular, these parks that are pre-existing or the uh, crown land that's been preserved and different zoning regulations that prevent further development. Before you move into the agricultural areas um, or move further up the valley, you move, in, you move into regulation that's meant to protect agricultural land, the agricultural land reserve. 
Um, and that's true also before you move down to the United States border, where most of that is also protected under agricultural land use. And even, you know, we, we even talk to some extent about moving out into the water, right? But before you move out into the water, which we have done in Vancouver, we filled in False Creek. You could fill in more of the existing water to create more land. They're doing that in Hong Kong. They're doing that in other places that are sort of water-bound cities. But before you get there, we've got all kinds of regulations now to protect our coastlands. So, in fact, before you move into any of these geographic constraints, we have regulatory constraints that are put in place. And they're put in place because we want to preserve the livability um, of the city. So, in that sense, that heavily regulated nature of uh, a city like Vancouver um, implies that a lot of these ways that we often think of Vancouver as being unique in terms of its position between the mountains and the sea um, aren't actually the case. And instead, we've got a lot of regulations that protect Vancouver, and those regulations are, in fact, portable. They can be moved to other cities to do something similar there to what we've done here. So the uniqueness about Vancouver is not where it is, but how it has been managed. It's both, but in terms of how it's been managed, those lessons can be taken and applied to other places. So do people living in Vancouver today, if Vancouver looks different in many respects from other cities in North America, do people living in Vancouver today have a different sense of value or or cultural drivers around the idea of housing in the single family house? Or are people in Vancouver still caught up in the zeitgeist around uh, the idea of the house in North America? That's a great question, and that's part of what drove me to write this book, right? So I wanted to go out and find out um, what people in Vancouver thought about these dramatic changes going on around them. And the big takeaway from that, to my mind, is that people in Vancouver are different from each other. <laughs> so some people in Vancouver really do feel like this is a big loss, um, that They grew up here in many cases, and their parents were able to own single-family detached houses on middle-income, middle-class lifestyles, Um, and they're getting the same kind of a good job, they have the same kind of education, they have the same background, but they find themselves completely unable to afford a single-family detached house now. So they see this in some cases as a personal failure, right? And more broadly, across North America, uh, a lot of people come to understand that a single-family detached house is a sign, an important symbol of success in life, that this is what you do. You get one of these things, and that indicates that you've become a successful adult, a good parent, um, you've achieved something. So when that path is blocked for people, a lot of people get really upset about that. and you find that in Vancouver. Some people are really upset. But what was exciting and interesting for me in many respects is that a lot of the other people have really decided that, you know what, this is kind of exciting, that we should try different ways of living. And Vancouver does that and supports that well. So a lot of people come here and they get, uh, or even who are from here, uh, realize that as they um, get into the time where they're interested in having a family, they don't necessarily need to go and find a single-family detached house. That, in fact, raising children downtown, raising children in a high-rise, in a low-rise, in a townhouse, all of these can be really exciting and interesting ways to raise kids. Um, and those are just for the people who have children. There are other people who don't want children and also find Vancouver really livable 
as a, as a place to be because you can walk down the streets and go to your uh, um, favorite restaurants. You can go right down to the seashore. You can um, jump over to the mountains and go hiking. Um, so there's all kinds of things that Vancouver makes accessible to a wide array of people in part because of the density that we see here uh, that are not accessible to people in the suburbs. I do want to talk a little bit more about the idea of a house and children, because these are really closely connected ideas in our culture. I mean, we really, uh, you know, you can live in an apartment for as long as you want, but as soon as you start talking about kids, it feels like even if you'd never shown any interest in a house before, something switches and all of a sudden the house becomes, for a lot of people, a necessity to even begin a conversation about having kids. Yeah, and I think that idea of it being a necessity is something that uh, um, you know we do see more broadly uh, in our culture around us. And people get the reinforcements that it's a necessity from their everyday conversations with their own parents. In many cases, um, you know, if you're going to have kids now, you got to get a house now. People hear that. People talk to me about hearing that uh, in their everyday lives. Some people really took that to heart. Other people kind of shrugged it off. And this, again, is one of the interesting things that some people were like, yeah, that's fine. That's your lifestyle, but it's not what I need. It's not what my family needs. And that kind of broader um, flexibility is mirrored in some ways in a lot of changes that we see in how people organize their families more broadly in a cultural sense. People are coming to much more individual notions in some regards of this is my family, um, some of these challenge our old uh, um, heterosexist notions, you know, that uh, that family has to be a man and a woman and children. No, it doesn't. You know, you can have same-sex uh, uh, partners. Some people experience with multiple uh, um, partners at the same time. And you can have children. You can have a wide variety of relationships accommodated in what we mean by family. Simultaneously, you can have a wide array of different kinds of housing um, that families live in. And that, too, is something that I think we see in the context of Vancouver, an encouragement to explore this kind of diversity um, of how people might live. And that's where we, in some respects, move from thinking about a living standard and a single-family detached house as a particular kind of standard, as opposed to lifestyles and different people trying out a diverse array of ways to live. It's interesting because our ideas around raising children and how we solve some of the inherent challenges in raising children, for example, um, the idea that you talk about in the book about how children occupy space in a different way from adults, which is a challenge of raising children. And, and to some extent, we as a culture see the only appropriate solution or the, the best possible solution to that is just have more space for children to be children rather than trying to find a different way to address that challenge in a, in a smaller space or in a different type of housing style. Yeah, and I think that, you know, runs into some of the issues that there are actual practical considerations about how people live too and the kinds of spaces we make available to people. You know, noise travels. Kids are noisy. <laughs> These things really do affect people in different kinds of housing situations quite differently. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right there, right? That we see and have seen single-family detached house as a solution these particular problems of urban livability. But we've constrained ourselves in doing that, and there are, in fact, many different solutions. 
Um, and I like to talk in part about, you know, one of the people that I talked to who lived um, in one of the downtown neighborhoods in a high rise, and she lived there with her um, kids, and everyone in the hallway of the high rise where she lived had children, and they all left their doors open, and kids ran back and forth from one house to another, and it sounded like this kind of amazing community that they had created there uh, that would be very supportive for raising children more supportive, in fact, than the isolating effects we sometimes get from single-family neighborhoods, but supported in a different way, um, right? So you have different annoyances associated with that. Maybe those kids are kind of loud and noisy as they run back and forth from apartment to apartment, um, but also different supports. Maybe it's kind of wonderful to be able to rely upon other parents to occasionally look after your kids as they're playing with their kids. and still not be very far away from them. So if you're needed, you can uh, appear. What a wonderful thing to have happen in this kind of a high-rise environment that's not facilitated in an environment where you have all these privatized single-family detached houses. People who grew up historically in other types of housing in North America, I'm thinking kids who grew up in in New York in the city, in the city of Vancouver, the city of Toronto, um, in a type of housing that wasn't a house, um, they rarely see themselves portrayed in, in media. And even though their day-to-day life is different, I guess people kind of internalize this subtext of a house is where children go. Children don't belong in apartments. And certainly... Even apartment and condo culture sometimes seems to actively exclude children. I mean, you do see these kinds of, of multifamily dwellings actually explicitly or implicitly state children not welcome. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it is interesting. I, I did start this project in some respects trying to think through, like, all the different television shows um, that I could think of from my own childhood on to the present. Um, where children are actually seen in apartment buildings, and I could only come up with just a just a couple. <laughs> that was a stretch, right? So it's really difficult to think of uh, uh, media portrayals of children raised in anything but single-family detached houses. And in terms of how children come to recognize that they are themselves not welcome in alternatives in condominium buildings historically in Vancouver. Um, and even in the present day, I think we still see a number of regulations uh, on the books in some of these condominium buildings that, that either prohibit children or suggest that uh, this is a seniors uh, or adult-oriented building. And there were people that I talked to who expi- described very, uh, in some respects, heart-wrenching stories about not getting a key to their own building as a child um, and these ways that they were made to feel like this was not an appropriate uh, environment for them as they were growing up. So we definitely see that. We also see it in other uh, ongoing uh, as an issue in terms of uh, how landlords discriminate against um, parents with children in terms of when you even apply for an apartment. And this is something that, uh, you know, I carried out independent research on using one of these audit studies um, where you send out possible responses to different um, housing ads placed on online marketplaces and you see what the response is. Does the uh, landlord or apartment manager write you back? If they write you back, do they say that the house is still available or do they tell you that uh, it's been taken? 
And you certainly see that a lot of these apartments um, that go up for rent, if you tell them that you're, say, a parent with a child and wanting to move in, you get a lower response rate than if you tell them you're uh, a heterosexual couple. Uh, so you start, you can really see evidence of this discrimination against children in apartments today, let alone historically. This is challenging in a place like Vancouver, because if you are a young family who can't afford to buy a single family house, where do you choose to live if a lot of the apartments or condos that are in your price range, either to rent or to buy, have a a no kids preferred sign on the front door? Absolutely. It's it's a real issue here, right? Um, And making more... um, more a greater variety of different options available to more people is a challenge for Vancouver. One of the biggest impediments I think that we still see, even though I think Vancouver has come a long way in this regard, is that we're still reserving you know, something like 80% of our residential land base for single-family detached houses, which at this point only millionaires can afford. You know, and at some point you're just like, what are we doing as a city regulating? our land in such a way that about 80% of our residential land base is reserved for millionaires. That's where you start to realize just how crazy this is. What are some of the other downsides of the single family house and the creation of these broad swaths of land dedicated to them that maybe some people don't think about as much? We've talked a little bit about uh, the changes to the natural environment um, and how it encroaches on uh, the environment around us. But there's some other things as well. I mean, my understanding is that a lot of these suburbs area are quite a bit more expensive compared to the higher density living areas for municipalities to uh, keep services provided to? Yeah, I mean, basically, the more further outward you sprawl, in many respects, you're also uh, uh, creating greater infrastructure costs to actually service these areas in terms of sewage, in terms of electricity, etc. So yeah, that's certainly an issue. Uh, But then you're also protecting all this land that is quite expensive, especially in a city like Vancouver, but in all cities, right? Houses take up more land than alternative forms of housing than apartment buildings, than townhouses, et cetera, on a per unit basis. So houses really consume lots of land, and that drives up the price, as well as the uh, unit itself. You know, you can't have any shared walls in a single-family detached house. So houses are built and meant to be more more expensive than alternative forms of housing, which effectively means you're, you're keeping out the poor, and you're keeping out, uh, in the context of Vancouver, you're even keeping out the middle class. Um, so houses are really expensive ways to house people, and that's been another important consequence of uh, uh, relying upon single-family houses as the predominant way we do try to house people in North America. But they also do a variety of other things, right? They are they do displace existing ecosystems because they take up so much land, and because they take up so much land and they privatize it as they take it up, they also um, reduce the kinds of vitality that you get in the city, where you can walk down to a shop nearby, you have uh, a coffee shop, you have uh, uh, small retailers, you have all kinds of different um, commercial uh, possibilities in terms of what you can do with land nearby. In the suburbs, you're much more limited to these giant big box store kind of uh, um, commercial settings, um, or strip malls, right? You can occasionally promote a strip mall, but none of these are particularly walkable or vital neighborhoods in the same way that you get in the city. 
And a lot of that's because of the way the single family detached houses really do privatize land and prioritize residential uses to land. So it, it's bad for urban vitality. It's bad for existing ecosystems. Uh, houses also take up more energy to heat and cool uh, because they don't share walls, because they are bigger on average than other kinds of dwellings. Um, you have to rely upon cars more often to get anywhere in terms of these neighborhoods that are reserved for houses because, again, lots of land, <laughs> most other uses are far away, so most people drive. Um, all of those things lead to greater greenhouse gas emissions and uh, real problems, not just locally, but on a global scale in terms of what we're doing to our environment. And that's part of what I tried to document in the book is that, uh, um, you know, if you look at the greenhouse gas emissions uh, produced across North America, a good chunk of them come from our transportation, our use of cars, and our residential energy uses together. Uh, so if we were able to reduce that sort of production, uh, that that uh, that focus of production of greenhouse gas emissions, if we were able to reduce the impact in any way, um, and moving to denser dwellings where we could walk and where we're using less energy to heat and cool them would really do that. If we could reduce that, we could take a sizable chunk out of our greenhouse gas emissions, um, and we could really work to reduce the global warming that we're seeing uh, more broadly. So that's definitely another thing that relying upon single-family detached houses is doing to us. And then we do have these other effects, right, that we can link them to in terms of creating vital urban spaces, spaces that are interesting to people. Uh, we get the sense that people don't walk as much. They don't go out and walk around as much when they live in the suburbs. Um, and in this respect, they're bad for our health, right? To the extent we want to get people out and walking, um, we want to create vital and interesting places for them to go. And by and large, single-family detached neighborhoods don't do that. They're not even all that good for our families, right? In terms of, uh, this is one of the other things that I was struck by in my research in Sweden, the more single-family detached um, dwellings that were being constructed in the neighborhoods, the less stable families in those neighborhoods became, which I found really interesting. I'm still, I have to admit, not entirely sure what's going on there, but it certainly doesn't seem to be the case, as you might expect, that creating more single-family detached houses would lead to more stable families. We're definitely not seeing that. And then finally, I think we can make a really strong case, and perhaps an even stronger case these days, that uh, single-family detached houses are not especially good for democracy. Um, when you live in single-family detached houses, you're mostly surrounded by other people that are a lot like yourself. And that's erosion of people's exposure to difference uh, really also tends to have these knock-on effects of eroding their sense of responsibility to people who are unlike themselves. Um, eroding their sense of emotional connection to diversity. And that, again, I think we can really make, uh, draw some broad uh, conclusions from it, bad for our democracy. Uh, so there's a big list of reasons that uh, that we should move away from the single family to catch that. So having stated that list of, uh, it's quite a long list of reasons to move away, having said that there are some things that single family houses do well that you can't do as well, or maybe not as well in the same way when you uh, move into higher density housing. Things like, as we talked about before, noise can be a big problem if you're living with a, sharing a wall with somebody. Whereas if you've got a house and a lot of yard space between you and the next people over, well, 
a dog barking or a few kids having uh, a late night run around in the backyard, it doesn't seem quite so bad. It's true, right? So there are definitely things that houses do uh, differently than other kinds of dwellings and, in fact, may do better. And what they really do, right, is they really uh, sort of maximize your control over a maximum amount of space and different kinds of space, including that outdoor space like a yard, which is really important to a lot of people. So that's definitely something that houses do um, best, in a sense, is maximum control over a maximum amount of space relative to other forms of housing out there. Um, but those same things that single-family detached houses maximize um, also can create problems. And I think that's part of what uh, we need to wrestle with when we think about single-family detached houses is what's the balance? Rather than automatically assuming that the best thing could be the best form of housing that you might have is to maximize uh, your amount of space and to maximize your control over it. We might start to think about what you get in return when you give up a little bit of control over space. Um, what you get in return when you give up some of that space. And I think you get a lot in terms of the different ways that uh, it draws you out into making yourself at home in public and a broader um, uh, in the broader sphere of the city itself. So that's in many respects the trade-off. And it's not to say that houses don't do something as well. They absolutely do. And this is uh, something I try to document as well in the book. That this really is a trade-off. But it's not a trade-off that we should that we should necessarily see as a bad one to make in terms of uh, giving up some of this maximization of control over maximum. So what lessons from Vancouver do you think other cities in North America can draw? Well, I certainly think that they really should consider um, relaxing the kinds of provisions that are currently protecting single-family residential neighborhoods. And again, I think that there are a variety of uh, ways you can do this. Um, one of the easiest things to do, of course, is to do the kinds of uh, relaxation of these provisions that Vancouver's doing in terms of allowing secondary suites, you know, making it possible for people to rent out a portion of their home to someone else, uh, allowing laneway houses, um, you know, in some cases, that's similar to allowing things like tiny houses that have become really popular for people, but allowing different kinds of drawings to be constructed in the existing yards of single-family houses. Um, allowing more people into uh, what we've set aside across North America as this great house reserve, which is right now increasingly becoming a sort of reserve for the wealth, or at the very least, um, outside of Vancouver. In Vancouver, it's definitely just the wealth. Outside of Vancouver, it's also the middle class, but we're, we're keeping poorer people or even working class people out of a lot of these neighborhoods. Um, and maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Maybe the city shouldn't be uh, segregating us by income in this way. Um, that's something that, again, we should really think about in terms of how we might want our cities to be built going forward. So that's a really easy thing to suggest. But at the end of the day, the policymakers who want to make that change quite often meet a lot of resistance from the communities of people already living in these places that don't want to see that kind of change, or at least don't want to see it in their neighborhood. Uh, I'm thinking a little bit of nimbyism. So how do we as as people or anybody listening who maybe already has that single family home in a suburban area in a city in North America, and maybe that city is looking at relaxing some of those zoning regulations in those residential areas that are have been primarily single family homes. How do we as people who have grown accustomed to a single family house being the way we live, try and break out of that mindset? It's a good question. 
And I've got two answers for you. One, uh, your person living currently in a single-family home might like, and the other one they might not. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with the one that they'll like, um, which is that uh, uh, relaxing these use provisions, in many ways, you might think of as allowing families who look at their own children, right? Parents who look at their own children and think about whether or not they'll be able to afford to live in that same neighborhood in the future. Um, they might think about that in terms of, well, if they relax use provisions, even if they can't buy a house next door, they can move into a house that we can build in the back, right? And we see a lot of people doing this in the uh, context of Vancouver and other places where laneway houses have been allowed. Um, people do start to use these lots in more flexible ways uh, to accommodate extended families, which is a great thing. Um, people also find that as you allow these kind of low intensive forms of densification in these neighborhoods, um, the neighborhoods become more interesting. You get more diversity. You get uh, um, uh, families, which in many cases get driven out of these neighborhoods by the high expense. Um, you get uh, um, new neighbors who will keep an eye on things uh, for you in the city. So there's a lot of benefit that even though people who are in neighborhoods that get densified uh, might feel like they're initially resistant to this kind of densification, they often find in the end that it turns out to be a good thing. So that's the part that hopefully you would like if you're already living in a single family detached house and thinking uh, with some trepidation about a possibility of ventilation. Uh, it also could come with some servicing benefits, right? The, the more you get people living in these neighborhoods, the more attractive it is to then transit lines to these neighborhoods um, and to become a bit more integrated with the rest of the Now, on the other hand, um, and this is perhaps the social justice argument, um, historically speaking, a lot of these neighborhoods that uh, uh, are predominantly single-family detached house neighborhoods are built upon a history of exclusion, of excluding people from the neighborhood, of uh, um, drawing boundaries around their broader social obligation. Um, so that's already built into the history of these neighborhoods. Um, and from a social justice perspective, we should really be asking whether or not this kind of neighborhood-based planning uh, is the way to go. Uh, because exclusion begets further exclusion as you keep planning with only a neighborhood-specific line. Instead of planning just for a neighborhood, instead of giving outside way to neighbor concern um, about what's going to be constructed in a neighborhood, we should be planning with a broader eye to the needs of the city as a whole, and especially to the needs of those who've been shut out of a lot of these neighborhoods. These are the people who um, have real housing needs as opposed to just lifestyle that aren't being met by many of our current uh, cities. And so these are the people who should have an outside say in how we move forward in terms of actually making sure we meet housing needs. And that may well mean that they get to overrule some of the people in these neighborhoods who have gone histories of exclusion in terms of what new housing forms we should be planning. Nathaniel, thanks so much for your time today. Really interesting book, and I think a topic we could all do with thinking a little bit more about. Thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful. And if you want to learn more about Nathaniel Louster or his book, The Death and Life of the Single Family House, Lessons from Vancouver on Building a Livable City, you can find some links to click in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. 
Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 